1: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talise. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Leif Wenar. His new book is titled Blood Oil Tyranny, Violence, and the Rules That Run the World. It is newly published with Oxford University Press when is Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College, London. Chances are that at this very moment you are looking at a computer screen, or else holding a digital device. Our computers and other devices are constructed out of materials that have their origins in lands across the globe. But as with most objects, oils plays a central and early role in the causal story of how we came into possession of them. And oil also plays a leading role in the major global conflicts of our day. With only a little analysis, it can be shown that much of the world's oil is sold by brutal tyrants who use the monetary proceeds to strengthen their tyranny. Yet it is arguable that the tyrants who control a territory have no legitimate claim to ownership of the territory's resources. The oil belongs to the people, not to the tyrants. So the oil that goes into creating the objects that we now own is likely stolen. How is it, then, that your computer, which is made out of oil in the form of plastic, is your property? and what can be done about the fact that our ordinary consumption habits so directly place large sums of money into the pockets of the world's most brutal men. These are among the questions taken up in Monar's Blood Oil. The book is a fascinating examination of the history, sociology, and politics of the global oil trade. Although the reality depicted in the book is bleak, Wenar's message is ultimately uplifting. He argues that the tools of radical reform are close at hand. Blood oil makes an important contribution to political philosophy. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Leif Wenar. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us on New Books and Philosophy.
0: My pleasure, and thanks to everyone who's listening out there.
1: Well, yes. Thank you, listeners, uh, for uh, for tuning in. Um, Today, I'm talking with Leif Winar about his fabulous new book, which is titled Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence and the Rules that Run the World. Um, As the title of Leif's book indicates, um, it's a sustained examination of the links, sometimes very direct links between habits of local consumption, global commerce and um, political corruption. And yet, and yet, Blood Oil um, develops an inspiring conclusion about the possibility of progress. Um, This book is filled with um, a a wealth of learning uh, of a historical, sociological um, kind. It's rich with data, but is also philosophically um, very rigorous. Um, So there's a lot to talk about. But let's begin where we typically do. Uh, Leif, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to this project?
0: Thanks so much. And you know, Bob, from what we do, being a political philosopher is often nothing more than just being able to see the big picture. And if people are listening right now, they probably are philosophers in that sense, too. They want to see the big picture. So look at the big picture of what we've been seeing in the news for our lifetimes and what the big threats and crises are. So right now, when you look at the headlines, we see ISIS with their atrocities and their beheadings. We see Assad barrel bombing his own people, causing a refugee crisis into Europe, and Putin dropping bombs in Syria, worsening that refugee crisis. We see ISIS spreading to Libya, hot conflict in Yemen. You see these two theocracies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Iran heating up their sectarian war. you know a little earlier uh, if you looked in the headlines, it was Putin going into Ukraine, and before that it was Gaddafi and Saddam and nine eleven and the genocide in Darfur and Iran uh, spreading terrorism around the world for thirty years and if you're as old as I am, you remember, what, the Soviet Union uh, surging ahead of us in the nuclear arms race in the 70s and 80s, and that's the big picture of the threats and crises we've faced over our lifetimes, and I'm just going to mention that there's one thing in common to everything I just cited. The one thing in common is all of those threats and crises came out of countries that produce a lot of oil. There's mm. something about having oil and other natural resources which is really disastrous for the politics and the economics of those places and as you know the violence uh, and the instability of the oil producing states always comes back and sloshes back over onto us whether we want to get involved or not
1: right so um let me ask th- that is the the uh, a, a, a nice way to encapsulate what is is clearly um a kind of urgent concern that drives you uh in, in writing the book um but let me just before we get into s- some more of these details let me ask um a- another kind of big picturey sort of question if I may so um as i say you know this is a work blood oil is a work in political philosophy although it's not only uh that as i mentioned it brings together an amazing uh amount of research far beyond what one would find in typical academic uh political uh philosophy uh history m- sociology um there's uh data that, you know uh there's, there's the kind of data that political scientists like um so maybe uh before we get into some of the details of telling this story can you, can you say a little bit more just about um where you see or how you see political philosophy as an academic discipline and maybe how you see this book as uh, fitting in with um, contemporary political philosophy, if indeed you think it does.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a terrific question. And I can just say that this book is written from the ground up. So it starts with an urgent practical problem in our world, a real political dysfunction, which is causing an enormous amount of suffering and injustice in other countries and threatening us at home at the same time. It's a very urgent practical problem. And it tries to see the big picture, put the different elements together, and then do what philosophers do, which is go up a level of abstraction and see what are the rules that are causing this big problem and could we possibly find other rules that the world could work by that would improve the situation that we find ourselves in. So it's really a ground up kind of political philosophy. And actually, as as I see the tradition, this is what some of the best work in our tradition has been like. So last time I was teaching uh, Political Theory 101 at Princeton, (laughs) I just said to the students, look at the books that are on our reading list in the canon for our field and look at who's writing these books. So Hobbes had to flee the country for fear of his life because of the political theory he was writing, and Locke had to fear his life because of the political theory he was writing. He had to flee to Holland. Uh, Rousseau uh, wrote a constitution for Poland. Mill was a member of parliament. They chased Marx from Germany to France, and from France to London. They still (laughs) followed him around with the secret police when he got to London. So these Theorists were deeply engaged in the practical struggles of their time and they understood what the problems were that were driving the pathologies they saw around them. And then through their analysis from the ground up, they went up a level and tried to come up with principled solutions to the problems that were very urgent in their day.
1: Excellent. Um, let me sort of press one once more on this. Um, So your own academic training, though, um, uh, is not um, directly, at least, uh, under the tutelage of uh, Locke and and Hobbes and Marx and Mill, um, but under more contemporary uh, political philosophers of note, uh, particularly John Rawls and and Robert Nozick. Do you see this book as um, bucking a trend within contemporary academic political philosophy or um, within uh, that tradition?
0: I see this work as in the main tradition of political philosophy, which is continuing in the more comprehensive theorizing of our distinguished forebears, the kind of the kind of theorists I just mentioned who really did start with the practical problems of their day. And they were not primarily writing commentaries on Aristotle. They really were <laughs> wrestling with, the, with the, the issues of their time. Um, it's true that in political philosophy now, there's a lot of top down stuff and that can often be. Uh, Terrific. There's a lot to be learned from starting with the principles and then just working out what the principles would be like uh, if the world would conform to them. That's that can be very worthwhile. But there's also a different way of doing it, which is starting with the world and then seeing what can be made from a slightly uh, higher vantage point. I've learned so much doing it from the ground up. I've learned so much about how our world and how it works, how power works, how it can be countered the history of the great struggles for freedom in our world and what really happened in the campaigns, for example, against the slave trade or the anti-colonial struggle or against apartheid, if you examine the world as your starting point, you see that the world itself is is much more complicated than it's often often represented in uh, top-down political theory, but also much more optimistic. Uh, Doing this project, I've become much more optimistic about the possibilities for positive change in global politics, which often seems so impossible and so grim. Mm. Studying this history has really made me optimistic that we can continue to make really big positive changes in the future.
1: Great. Um, And the optimism, uh, I should say, um, is not um as obvious in the beginning of the book but um uh really uh uh comes through at the end um and have been discussing the book with some students who are about halfway through <laughs> and they haven't gotten to the uh to all the solutions um that you talk about at the end um and so um they say wow this is such a great book but it is it is it's so terrifying to learn all of this stuff. Like, well,
0: so it's, it's written as a divine comedy, and, and they've gone through Inferno, and they're probably in Purgatorio <laughs> right now. <but> paradise, is- <laughs> uh,
1: I didn't put it that way, but I did uh, uh, suggest that they need to stick with it. But, so let's start then in, in, in talking about how the, how the book runs. So um, beginning uh, ground up, uh, I am, uh, to be totally honest, looking right now at this screen of my computer. And uh your book starts with uh a, a, a very evocative image uh of uh of us looking at screens um and starts talking about the ways in which um our cell phones and our computers and other objects that we interact with daily are the culmination or the the, end, the terminus of um very long supply chains that that stretch uh, all over the globe and and twist in interesting directions. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how this screen that I am actually now looking at uh, came to be in my office in Nashville, Tennessee?
0: Yeah, and it's a great story, isn't it? We're surrounded by these miraculous swirls of molecules that let us satisfy our desires in such tremendously interesting ways. But we don't tend to think when we're looking at a screen like your screen that every single molecule making up that physical object came from some exact point on the Earth's surface. At the other end of the global supply chains that constructed your screen, there were natural resources. And the book is a lot about what happens at the other end of these global supply chains where natural resources are extracted from the ground. So here's something you may have thought of. Essentially, anything that is plastic is made from oil. And where did the oil that makes up most of your computer screen and your computer come from? Well, if you trace the supply chain back, it goes to a refinery and back to a tanker, and then it was probably sold from some large oil-producing country like Equatorial Guinea or even Saudi Arabia, The book is all about how we're in business through the world's supply chains with the violent and oppressive men who are in charge in these resource rich states. And how our money from our everyday purchases of tech and clothes and food and cosmetics goes to these men of violence and how their violence not only is bad for the people of their countries, but comes back to us through wars and terrorism and extremism.
1: Right. So uh, we'll pick up on that in a second. But it it was one of the um, uh, more um, sort of uh, one of the more interesting features of this very early part of the book was something you you just said about how much of everything is oil. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's not just plastic Uh, clothing. I mean, um, and even things that are not um, in some very direct sense oil. Uh, are tainted or or, 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 uh, at one point you might even say dripping with oil. Can you tell us a little bit about how much stuff is oil?
0: It's true. Oil is everywhere. And this is something we usually don't think of. But I mean, just let me ask you, Bob, and this is a personal question, but what's the last thing you bought? What's the last thing today that you handed over money for?
1: Uh, A cup of coffee.
0: Great. So (laughs) a cup of coffee is a lot about oil. So the beans that you are used to grow your coffee were probably grown with nitrogen that was extracted from oil there was probably some pesticides that used to oil and of course the transportation of the beans to where you are was through an oil powered vehicle and I know that because 90% of the world's transportation runs on oil it's almost every car truck ship plane it's all oil powered now We should try to change the fleet over as fast as we can to get away from fossil fuels, but that's going to take a while. Almost everything you can see right now, wherever you are, has been moved to where it is by oil, and that includes the people. So unless you're looking straight up at the sky, everything you can see was very likely either made of oil or certainly transported where it is by oil Oil is probably in your glasses. It might be in your waistband. You might be smearing it on your face. It might be enhancing your sex life. Oil is everywhere.
1: It's amazing <laughs> when you think about it. Um, so and 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 not only amazing, but also um, a little disconcerting. Uh, so let's get to the, uh, the 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 second part of what you were saying a moment ago. Um, so uh, part of the. the 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 story of oil uh is also as you were mentioning the story of um political corruption and tyranny and um uh, uh authoritarianism all in the name of uh controlling uh the commerce surrounding oil so um one of the uh um concepts that come up in the book and um Uh, that you've written on uh, elsewhere is uh, The Resource Curse. Can you tell us a little bit about The Resource Curse and some of the data surrounding it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's so fascinating. So, you know, of course, the book is called Blood Oil, and I think when a lot of people pick up the book, they expect it to be about the nefarious deeds of our oil companies or maybe about our political leaders who have led us to invade certain countries, overthrow regimes, and so on. And there's a little bit about that in, in Blood Oil, but Actually that story is very familiar we probably agree on the, the terrible things our companies and countries have done the book really is more about the rules of the world that keep driving disasters of various kinds in oil producing states so here's here's one way of looking at how bad oil can be for your country you know that the developing world in general has been doing very well in terms of income for the past uh, 35 years or so. So China's gotten much better, better off. India's gotten, Indonesia. The developing world has, in general, been getting much richer and much more democratic and much more peaceful. But not the oil states. Here's a remarkable fact. The oil states in the developing world are no richer, no freer, and no more peaceful than they were in 1980. There's something about having oil in particular, which makes you much more prone to authoritarianism and civil conflict and corruption and also strange phenomena. Oil states are much worse for the political and economic rights of women. There's, oil is a disaster for so many countries in the developing world. That's the oil curse. And it's not just oil because minerals... Um, like the metals that go into our tech and gemstones can also curse the countries that have them. Instead of being a blessing for the people of the country, these resources turn into a curse.
1: So, good. Um, just sticking with, uh, with the, the, the oil as the resource um, uh, that curses the country, can you contrast um, uh, the countries you were mentioning a moment ago, um, particularly maybe um, Equatorial Guinea, uh, with an oil-producing country like Norway? Where it looks like the story is a little bit different, but I think we're you know sort of uh, in, uh, in a way that's illuminating.
0: Certainly. and and it could be. You no know, shame. some people might not have heard of Equatorial Guinea. It's an obscure, nasty little dictatorship in Central Africa, uh, which has been ruled for years by this sociopathic kleptocratic president who has been taking the oil wealth for himself while his people uh, live in poverty, and most people. They're still live on less than what $2 a day could buy you in Nashville. So Equatorial Guinea is a classic oil-cursed country, while Norway, which also has lots of oil, is at the top of every single list of international indicators. And how is that? How has Norway done so well with its oil while Equatorial Guinea and other countries have done so poorly?
1: My wife dreams of moving to Norway. She's not a philosopher, but she is um, uh, constitutionally very um, egalitarian. And so, um, yeah, anyway. (laughs) It's a
0: bit chilly, but otherwise, yeah, it's a remarkable country. So, Norway has saved up so much money in its sovereign wealth fund that Americans can imagine that um, Social Security in America, instead of running a mounting deficit, is already funded for decades in advance. That's what it's like living in Norway. And they use their money for very um, uh, progressive causes, uh, especially for um, women's uh, rights and um, egalitarian uh, social, social services around the country. It really is quite a great instance of oil helping the people. But I can tell you what the difference is between Norway and Equatorial Guinea. The most striking difference of the countries that do well and do poorly by their oil is... The ones that did well are the ones where the oil money came in after the government was accountable to the people, after the country had consolidated its democracy. So if the oil money comes in when the government is accountable to the people, then the people make the government use the money for public goods, right? That's the story of Norway. But if the money comes in, When the country is under the cosh of a strong man, then the money goes to the strong man and lets him use that money for more coercion and more buying of uh, loyalty of anyone who might try to resist. And even worse, if the money comes in while the country is in the middle of a terrible civil conflict like you see uh, now in Libya, then the money just goes to the armed groups and lets them escalate the civil conflict that they're in. So... If the country is in control of the people when the money comes in, it makes the people stronger. But if the money comes in before people have control of their government, then the authoritarians and armed groups make the people weaker.
1: Right. And it seems as if um, there's uh, a lot in common among the cursed states with how the political structures are um organized that is that you you're 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 constantly pointing out the ways as you were just saying in which um dictators uh benefit from uh the oil revenues and then establish um what's the right way to put it these sort of um interestingly hierarchical kinds of clients and um uh, uh, a structure by which often the money is used to keep different factions fighting each other, so that the the dictator stays in power. Can you tell us a little bit about how these uh, these cursed states have their po- their politics structured in these sort of almost pyramidy kinds of ways?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and let me just start off with a, an interesting fact for people to ponder: Why do we still have authoritarians in the twenty first century? I mean. You know, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, every country was authoritarian, but why do we still have that around? What What's going on with, with that? If you want to, you can you can look at the list of authoritarian countries in the world. The Economist has a list, and it says there's about 53 of them. And just look at those countries and ask yourself, how many of those countries would be authoritarian if the regimes were not getting their power from outside of the country? So how many authoritarian regimes would there still be without oil and foreign support, right? I mean, there would still be some. Certainly China, which is going through a, a long, long transition, would still be authoritarian right now. But I, I, my guess is that at least half of the countries that are now authoritarian would not be if it weren't for the fact that if the country has oil, well, the regime can just sell off the oil. Keep the money for its own purposes. Oil is the largest source of absolute power in the world. If you can control oil by force in your country, then this gigantic funnel of money comes in from the rest of the world. And that money is entirely unaccountable. That is your money to do what you want. Unlike even foreign aid, it comes with no strings attached. Unlike bank loans, you never have to pay it back. And of course, if you get the money from selling off the country's oil, you need not be accountable to your people. Rather, if you are an oil-fueled authoritarian, what we call a petrocrat, you can use the money that comes from outside of your country for selling off the oil for keeping the people divided. The central strategy of every oil-fueled authoritarian is divide and rule. Part of that is just pure coercion. You've got to keep the people from organizing against you. So you get security forces and armies to keep them divided and in fear. And the other part of having oil money is that you can use the money to buy off threats. You keep the people divided by keeping them locked into these pyramidal structures of dependence, where the oil money flows down steep hierarchies, and each level buys the loyalty of the level under it. If you look at an oil-producing country like Angola or Nigeria, what you see is a network of clients, a pyramid of clients, where the oil money comes down, each level buys the loyalty of the level below, and a little bit of money finally trickles through maybe to the actual uh, citizens of the country, especially when it's time to buy votes. But what doesn't happen in these oil producing uh, uh, corrupt regimes is the money being spent for public goods. The oil money that's poured into the top is used to buy the loyalty of officials all the way down and then a little bit dribbles through to the people, but public goods provision in terms of education, health and infrastructure, energy is often quite poor and that's why we see such Dreadful developmental outcomes in such resource-rich countries.
1: Great. So, um, the resource curse, uh, which is a, I guess, a, a, a familiar enough um, concept, and uh, um, uh, many of our listeners will, have, you know, be familiar with with the phenomenon at least. But one of the um, interesting implications that you reveal of um, uh, the the ways in which um, countries are resource-cursed is actually a story about how we, um, citizens of the countries that um, do business with resource-cursed countries, the curse is kind of on us, right? That the resource curse sort of uh, uh, curses the people within the country, but also um, reaches out uh, and uh, shows up uh, uh, on the doorsteps of uh, non resource cursed countries, but resource or, or rather the countries that are dependent on resource cursed countries, can you tell us that part of the story
0: yeah you're exactly right, and that's that 's a lot of uh, what we where we started I mean just think back on that list of countries is that we began with soviet Union Iran. Iraq, and then Al-Qaeda coming out of um, Saudi Arabia. And now we have ISIS with the same ideology, and Gaddafi and uh, Saddam Hussein um, in Iraq with the with the invasion of Kuwait and the genocide in Darfur. The biggest threats and crises that our countries have faced over the last forty years have come from oil states. And I'm sorry to say, that we are going to be cursed by our sending money to these countries in exchange for their oil even more if we continue with business as usual. So there's this arc of oil in the world that runs from Russia through the Middle East into Africa. That's where most of the world's oil reserves are. And that is the arc of oil that has been causing us in the West so much trouble the past 40 years. And it's the arc of oil which scientists tell us because of climate change, is going to get hotter and drier and hungrier and thirstier over the next 10 to 15 years, which means it's going to be even more unstable than it is. So if you thought that the last 40 years was genuinely scary, the next 10 or 15 years could be truly challenging for the West.
1: Right, and... um Part of the story also is that, particularly with um, respect to Saudi Arabia, is that the very um, uh, the, the, the 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 authoritarian family that benefits from uh, our consumption um, also is in the business of supporting um, uh, religious uh, groups, extremists uh, who are interested in attacking uh, attacking us. Is that right? That's right. I mean, I think most
0: Americans, most people in the West are not very happy, you know, buying oil from Saudi because they can see these guys are very rich and very repressive of their own people. And a lot of them seem to be living debauched lifestyles when they get to the West and drive around in their fancy boats and cars. But that actually, the corruption and the Hypocrisy of the Saudis is not the main story. The main story is now just coming out. 1979 was a big year for the Saudi regime. They had been pursuing a cautious developmentalism, trying to diversify their economy. And then they faced a series of crises. In particular, the Grand Mosque, which is the holiest of the holiest in Islam, was taken over by radical fundamentalist uh, Islamic radicals. And that was a big crisis. It was also a time where the Saudis had a lot of oil money, and that was the moment that they decided for their own domestic legitimation and stability that they would turn a lot of their internal policy and also their foreign policy over to their hyper conservative clerical uh, establishment. That clerical establishment is a promoter of this very extreme anti Western, anti Christian, anti Semitic, and actually anti-other versions of Islam, strain Mm. of Islam called Salafism. And Saudi, after 1979, engaged in what is probably the largest ideological, expansive campaign of our times. The Soviet Union, as far as we can tell, spent about $7 billion on propaganda. The Saudis spent maybe $70 billion spreading this extreme intolerant version of Islam around the world, by funding study centers and schools and madrasas. And that is the version of Islam, which we now see mutating into this jihadi extremist variation of Salafism, which is looking like homegrown extremism, not only in the Middle East and Asia, but also in Europe and maybe even now in the United States. So in a sense, we are facing now Uh, adversary that we through our buying of Saudi oil helped to create
1: Amazing Um, so uh, let's then turn to um, what might be uh, understood as sort of the central plank of the conceptual um, part of the book which is um, the book tells the story of uh, a gradual receding of a particular kind of rule that more widely ruled the world uh, uh, in the not so distant past, which is the rule of effectiveness. And I take it that the arc of the book is um, building on or, or noting the ways in which uh, this rule, this, this concept of effectiveness has sort of receded along, you know, in all kinds of other uh, areas of life and, um, and that resources is uh, as it were the sort of the, the, the final holdout for effectiveness as, as the, the ruling principle. Uh, tell us about that part of the, of the story and, and what effectiveness is. Certainly,
0: and I can say that the world is just a lot more frightening and a lot more optimistic than I thought when I began this project. So the frightening part we've seen, right?
1: right. Somehow
0: we are in business with these oppressive and violent and extreme groups around the world. And how does that happen? Well, it happens because of this very bad old rule of effectiveness, which is essentially a rule that says might makes right. So for natural resources, it's just what we've been discussing. Every country's rule for the natural resources of other countries is whoever can control it by force over there will buy the resources from them. So, for example, when Saddam took over Iraq in a coup, we started buying Iraq's oil from Saddam, and then years later, when ISIS took over those same wells, the world started buying Iraq's oil from ISIS. The rule is, whoever can control it by force can sell it to us, and that is this rule that's putting us into business every day with almost everything we buy with the men of blood abroad might makes right is our rule for the natural resources of other countries you can see how it generates power for authoritarians and armed groups if they can keep control of the oil then they get the money that they need to oppress the people or continue a civil conflict and of course the incentives are for the most coercive people to get to control of the resources and that's why in our world the most coercive men have ended up on top so might makes right is our rule for natural resources. And it's the rule that it's been in effect our whole lives. We totally take it for granted. When you see it in the big picture, you see the trouble that it's causing. You can tell that it's a rule that we now need to overcome. But that's tough, right? So this rule is deeply ingrained in the world's economy. Everyone takes it for granted that, you know, seizing a country's political capital gives you the control over its natural capital, right? So might makes right is a big part of the world as it works right now. Could we possibly overcome it? Well, that's the optimistic part of the story, because there's another big picture fact about our history, which shows that humanity has overcome might makes right in other areas so many times before. So, let's just think about what international affairs look like 300 years ago, say. 300 years ago, might makes right was a rule not only for natural resources, but for almost everything, including human beings. So 300 years ago, the world's rule for human beings was whoever can control them by force can sell them to us. And under that rule, the European empires forced 12 million Africans through the dreadful Middle Passage, where those Africans were legally bought as property in America because might made right. And, And it wasn't only for human beings either. Back then, 300 years ago, if one country could capture territory from another country militarily, it got the internationally recognized legal right to rule that territory. Or if one country could control the population of another country, it got the legal right to rule That population, that was what colonialism was. And even within countries, whoever had the most power had almost unlimited rights to do whatever they wanted to, to the people of the country. So a sovereign in the old days could do whatever it wanted to the people. It could install a racist apartheid government or engage in ethnic cleansing, even genocide. All of these things were entirely legal under international law.
1: But now look,
0: look at the progress we've made over the last 300 years. All of those things that I've just mentioned are now illegal. So the slave trade is illegal. Territorial conquest, colonialism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, genocide. All of those instances of might makes right have been turned into violations of international law, and we now have laws that require respect for individual human rights, and for the self-determination of peoples. Now, it's obvious that just because we have new, better rules at the international level doesn't mean that we've magically abolished power, right? I mean, our new laws are still violated far too often. But, at least we're on the right side of history when it comes to things like the slave trade and colonialism and apartheid. But we're still on the wrong side of history when it comes to might makes right for natural resources, which keeps on zombieing on into the 21st century. The progress that humanity has made over the last 300 years has been in turning what used to be regarded as Respectable practices of violence, like the slave trade and colonialism and apartheid, turning those into widely reviled crimes. But we still say might makes right for natural resources. It's one of the few unreformed remnants of that bad, old, violence-based international system. We've overcome might makes right so many times before. We can do it again for natural resources.
1: Right. But so let me suggest one um, further uh, respect in which uh, the optimism shines through, because I take it that although our practices with respect to resources um, uh, have implicit in them, uh, effectiveness might makes right as um, the rule of acquisition and transfer and all the rest. Um, When you think about those supply chains, uh, when you think about and, and and you do say this in the book, right? When you think about, well, the computer screen was sold to me by a store. The store got it from the company. The company, we go all the way back, and then we say, and at the root, you know, at the beginning of the supply chain is um, an authoritarian with his henchmen and a bunch of guns stealing stuff out of the ground. Yeah. Um, once the uh, supply chain is revealed to have at its f- sort of first link. Theft, then conceptually, it does seem, <laughs> right? Uh, it does seem to invalidate my claim to ownership, right? I mean, so there's a effectiveness is the rule in practice, but it doesn't look like it's um, a rule that once we're aware of it, we we can reflectively endorse. Is that right?
0: That's exactly right. I mean, the rule makes no sense from even an ordinary <laughs> perspective. If you know, if you're in, in Nashville and an armed gang takes over a Texaco station. It's not like the law says that the bystanders get the right to buy the gas from the armed gang, right? I mean, that would that's that's an obvious violation of even the simplest rules of ordinary life. But when Gaddafi took over Libya in a coup, we started buying Libya's oil from Gaddafi. And then during the Arab Spring, when rebels took over the same wells, we started buying the oil from the rebels. So the rule really is, might makes right. Whoever can control it by force will buy it from them.
1: And it's just a it's a um, it's an unhappy sort of partner with um, uh, with the principles that govern um uh, the rest of our lives it seems uh, that is that um we we think that if it begins with theft nobody gets property in it uh, no matter how much money they've paid from the person who stole it for it um so let's uh talk about some of the the, the positive uh proposals. So w- one of the sort of again conceptual points that you make life is um a far more consistent story to tell about uh a country's natural resources is um a popular sovereignty story that um Uh, It's not the dictator who owns the resources of the territory that he uh, controls. It's the people who have the um, uh, ownership of those resources. Is that right?
0: That's right. And it's, it's a really interesting story, not only in terms of political principle, but just in terms of a real practical solution to this gigantic problem of oil and other resources in our world. So go back to that point I was trying to emphasize before. Oil is the largest source of absolute power in the world. If you can get coercive control over oil, you get a gigantic stream of money from the world and that power that you're getting is entirely unaccountable. It's not checked by outsiders, it's not checked by the people of your country. That's why oil causes so much problems, because the people who get it have absolutely unchecked power. Now, that is because of this bad old rule of might makes right, which says that whoever has the power will buy it from them. Mm -hmm. What is the only source of accountability that can be brought to bear on those oil-fueled authoritarians and armed groups? Well, you know, here we've been (laughs) trying to check the power of authoritarians enriched by oil for many years. And whatever we do, our tools are just not up to the job. What are our tools? for trying to check the power of uh, petrocrats. Well, we can invade, right? Or we can put sanctions on, or we can try to make alliances with the authoritarian. But none of those mechanisms for checking the power of oil from the outside have worked. I mean, how has it gone? Right? You know, installing the Shah after overthrowing the democratically elected government of Iran. How did that go with Iran? How did it go, you know, making uh, friends with Saddam Hussein? How's it going? With the Saudis, or how did it go with Gaddafi? In country after country, we can invade or not invade, sanctions or no sanctions, drones or no drones, alliance or no alliance, whatever we do from the outside, we keep getting these disasters and these threats and crises coming back. We can't check the power of oil from outside. There's only one plausible source right now of accountability for natural resources, and it is, of course, the citizens of the country itself. It's the citizens of the country who should have the ultimate right to control the resources of the country. And this is one of the deepest political principles, not only of the United States and Great Britain, but actually of most of the world. The whole world already speaks as if it was obvious that the resources belong to the people. Um large majorities of individuals around the world, even in the Arab world, all when polled will say that they believe in popular sovereignty and leaders of all persuasions stand up and say the oil belongs to the people. And leaders not only like George Bush and Tony Blair, but the president of Mexico or Brazil, the Norwegian parliament, even Ayatollah Khamenei will say that mm-hmm. the oil belongs to the people. And best of all, As a result of the great struggles for freedom of the 20th century, this principle that the resources belong to the people is already enshrined in major treaties to which almost every country is already party. So if you look at Article 1 of both of the major human rights covenants, it just says, all peoples shall for their own ends, freely dispose of their natural wealth and resources. So here we're in this situation. The world is being seriously destabilized by this bad old rule of might makes right, this holdover from 300 years ago. And the world has already, at least on paper and in rhetoric, agreed on this better modern rule that the country should ultimately be in the control of the people, the government should be accountable to the people. What we could try to do is move from the bad old rule to this modern principle and get accountability over natural resources into the hands of the citizens of the countries themselves
1: right so in the book, you do consider um, uh, for illustrative purposes I, I don't think that you you think that this is an actual possibility. you do consider a possible critic who might say well um." Some of the oil-producing countries that um, uh, that are your main examples are just countries where the people have chosen to um, let their rulers decide um, how the resource, how the money from the resources will be spent. It's true, uh, and uh, I, I've heard that quite <laughs> and a lot. You, yeah, and so um, you you develop a uh, a a set of um, considerations. By which you argue um, persuasively, it it didn't seem to, I didn't take a lot of persuading on this point, but to be honest with you, that um, it wouldn't be possible uh, given the social conditions that um, prevail in some of these oil producing countries, Saudi Arabia and Equatorial uh, Guinea, uh, to be specific, I think are your main examples. Just not possible for uh, the citizens uh, um, uh, uh, within those countries uh, to have. Uh, consented to that. Can you tell us a little bit about that part of the account?
0: I can. And uh, if I can be slightly unkind to some of my fellow academics, let me just mention <laughs> that. there are some. That's
1: very welcome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there are some very rich authoritarian countries who have been throwing a lot of money at elite academics, uh, especially on the east coast of the United States. And this is a line you often hear from lead academics on the East Coast of the United States now that the people of the country actually really like the deal they're getting from their authoritarian regimes. And they don't mind that the authoritarians are selling off the resources beyond the accountability of the people and using the money for um, buying palaces and prostitutes and champagne and so on. So that is not a story that I believe. What if we actually did take seriously this idea that as Abraham Lincoln said in his first inaugural, a country belongs to its people. What if we believe that in every country it's the people and not the regime? We should have the final say of what's done with the resources. Well, what that would mean in practice is that the government would have to be accountable, minimally accountable to the people for what it does with the resources. We're not talking Norway here. Here's, here's some practical tests. See if you believe this. For, for whether the people could possibly be agreeing to their oil, for example, being sold off. Four tests. First, can the people know what's happening to their resources? Can they know who's getting the money for the oil and how that money's being spent? Second, can citizens talk to each other about what their government is doing with the oil without fearing for uh, their safety or their lives? Third, Can citizens peacefully protest what their government is doing without fearing for their safety or their lives? And finally, if a majority of citizens strongly disagree with what the government is doing with the resources, will the government policy change in a reasonable time? So, again, we're not talking Norway here. We're just talking minimal, bare bones, civil liberties and political rights those conditions are in place then yes the governments accountable to the people but in so many countries the oil money makes it impossible for the citizens to exercise civil liberties and political rights like that and in those countries the resources are literally being stolen from the people and sold off by these authoritarians and also armed groups and that is the oil curse curse that we started with if you look at uh, oil trade today over fifty percent of the world's oil should be considered as stolen from the people of the countries where it's extracted. Fifty percent and more of the world's oil right now is stolen goods if we believe this very basic political principle that a country ultimately
1: belongs to its people right um yeah i um sad to hear about the uh the east coast uh, intellectuals but um Elites. So, um, uh, just let's, um, talk a little bit about the, the positive, uh, sort of practical, uh, proposal. So, um, in the latter part of the book, the last three or four chapters, um, you sketch, uh, a, um, in some, in good detail, I should add, uh, a pretty feasible, uh, plan for action, um, that you, uh, call sort of a plan for, uh, clean trade. Um, can you run us through uh the the two different um elements uh, of that proposal
0: sure and And we've been talking for a while, and I know people out there maybe uh having a lot of words hitting their eardrums, so let me just give the the main message of fair sure. trade, and I can sum it up very quickly. We should stop buying authoritarian oil. We don't need oil from authoritarians anymore. It's been causing a huge amount of trouble in our lives and the trouble is just going to get worse. So the main proposal here is just we in the West should stop buying authoritarian oil and we should lead the world to announce that the world is going to stop buying authoritarian oil, too. Now, that's a big ask. And as you say, you need a lot of uh, plans for how that can happen responsibly, gradually, peacefully, so that we don't overturn the world's economy and so on. Thank you for saying that the plans look feasible to you. I also agree that they're feasible. It will be a big change, but there have been a lot of big changes in our lifetimes. This will be one that will make our world much better in terms of security and stability and respect for basic human rights. So, the main proposal of clean trade is just that we should taper off our imports of authoritarian oil and gas and also our imports of conflict minerals so that is the big ask, and that's the most important thing we can do
1: um Do we owe as part of that um, any uh, major changes in our habits of consumption that is that um, uh, what's the this is not so much emphasized in the book, but I take it that it's 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 certainly part of your your thinking that there, along with the, the, the clean trade ask, um, there might also be some um, responsibility to uh, change our consumption habits in the West. Is that right?
0: There are a lot of ways that we as consumers and as citizens can signal that we really want to be got out and out of business with the men of blood abroad, abroad. So. Actually, I draw a lot of inspiration from uh, the British example of the ending of the Atlantic slave trade. Right. It really was the people of Britain back in the late 18th and early 19th century who saw this moral horror that was the slave trade that their country was heavily involved in. It's just an extraordinary complicity of the British elite in the slave trade, the slave trade um gave Britain its first millionaire the the mayor of London was a huge absentee plantation owner uh Lloyds Bank Barclays Bank were lending money like crazy to slave ships so a big part of the British economy was wrapped up in the slave trade and of course it wasn't just the elite it was also sailors and coopers and blacksmiths who got jobs in the slave trade and it was it was a lot of it was sugar the sugar that was being uh harvested by slaves in the Caribbean was perhaps 5% of the British GDP is really significant, but the people of Britain saw this moral horror and they just insisted over years and then decades that they be gotten out of this business. And they marched and they petitioned and they boycotted and they pressured. And eventually they did convince their leadership to get them out of this uh, slave trade business. And it was one of the most remarkable campaigns in history. The fundamental source of change against this rule of might makes right has to be the people. And in our case, the case of oil and other natural resources, it's not only a moral horror, but as you can see with the headlines of today's newspaper, this is a trade that will come back and curse us as well. We will be threatened by the money that we send into these increasingly destabilized countries. So the people of our countries do have to make sure that our leaders get us out of this business of buying oil and other resources from aggressive and oppressive men abroad how do we do it well actually if you go to the website uh called cleantrade.org you'll see several strategies that people can do right now to help alert our leaders and our corporations that we're no longer going to put up with this so there's a declaration of principles which uh, clean trade has developed over many years with a team of international lawyers, which just shows our leaders in our national governments the laws that they should pass to get us out of business with the men of blood abroad, to get us out of business with the men of blood abroad, mm-hmm. and consumers, for example, just as the British uh, boycotted slave grown sugar back then 200 years ago. We can also engage in consumer action to bring this issue to greater attention. So on the cleantrade.org website, you'll find an index which we've developed, which will show you which of the big oil companies is doing more business with authoritarian regimes. And you can use that information to decide where to buy your gas at next time you need to fill up. Right, And Mm -hmm. we can engage, for example, in boycotts. Uh, to encourage our Chinese friends also to stop buying stolen oil from some of these terrible regimes. So here's one of the boycotts is called the toy cot. I mean, we don't tend to think of it, but, you know, toys are mostly plastic and plastic is oil. So when we buy toys from China, we're likely buying stolen oil and we shouldn't be letting our kids play with stolen goods. Right. So we can engage in consumer action which will bring this issue more and more to the attention of the world and pressure our leadership to get us out of bin- business as usual and shift to a new, better way of getting our raw materials.
1: Well, Leif, you've been um, very generous with your time, and uh, it's been wonderful uh, both reading and now talking to you about the book, Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, uh, and the Rules That Run the World. Um, so I understand that um, the publication of this book will now have you quite busy for the, for the near future. Do you have any philosophical projects uh, on the horizon or um, uh, is uh, talking about the book and um, pressing this agenda um, uh, uh, what your life is going to be like for the foreseeable future?
0: The book will keep me busy. For a long time, the project will be a big project in my life. But I have to tell you, and this goes back to where we started. I didn't really know what I believed about political theory and the deepest sources of normativity until I started doing this project. I'm a well-trained philosopher, so I could tell you the three different arguments for the different positions and the five counterexamples and so on. But I didn't actually have to take responsibility for any of my philosophical positions until I started doing a ground up project. I didn't have to put my name on anything that would really make a difference in the world. But when I started doing this project, I found that I was recommending something that is equivalent to sanctions. We're going to have to stop buying oil. Uh, from some countries and you know sanctions can be terrible things a lot of people suffer uh, because of sanctions if you're going to put your name to a piece of work that recommends something as dramatic as sanctions you better believe in your heart what you're saying you'd better believe in the principles that you're recommending as guides for real political action and it wasn't until i had to try to go to sleep at night and think about whether i really deep down believed in what i was saying that I came to understand what my own political philosophy is. So the press was very generous, and they let me sneak in a final epilogue to this book, Blood Oil. And in the epilogue, you'll see a new moral and political theory, um, which is actually what I very deeply believe now, that is a new form of consequentialism, not based on well-being or utility, but based on the free unity of human ends. So there is a new theory there at the very end of the book. And as I continue working on this very practical project, I will continue to develop that philosophical theory of the free unity of human ends. And I would be very encouraged if any of my fellow philosophers out there would be interested in discussing these ideas.
1: Well, that's, that's wonderful. And, um, a lot of the, I, I should just say, philosopher to philosopher, um, uh, a lot of the uh, suggestions at the end of the book seem to me um, uh, totally worth pursuing. Um, so um, an ideal dependent kind of consequentialism seems to me to be uh, an idea whose time has come and um, an idea who's sort of surprising in a way that it hasn't been, you know, um, more central to the mainstream of consequentialist thinking thus far. Um but um, having said all that, uh, Leif, let me just thank you for, uh, for, for joining us today to talk about your book, Blood Oil.
0: Well, thank you so much, Bob. And let me just say that if there was anyone I would look forward to talking to these ideas about, both the practical uh, political ones and the deeper philosophical ones, it's you. And I'm so glad that we actually are going to be together soon. And I'm so much looking forward to our further conversations about these topics. I would just look forward to that so much. And thank you so much and people listening for sparing the time.
1: Well, thank you, Leif, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll see you in Nashville soon enough.
0: Looking forward to that. So much fun.
1: Yeah. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Leif Winard of King's College London. We were talking about his new book, Blood Oil, Tyranny, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World, newly published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for listening.